your Bibles, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to John chapter 2, to the Gospel of John chapter 2. Welcome to week 6 of our journey through the Gospel of John. And remember, John wrote this Gospel um, so that we may hear it, and of course, in hearing it, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So as we've said uh, every week, John wrote this gospel so that we would believe in Jesus and that we would keep believing in Jesus and not stop and grow in our belief. And two weeks ago, we focused on Jesus turning water into wine, and we said it had to do with joy. So it all had to do with, with joy. Well, this morning, we moved from joy to the matter of holy worship. And what we're going to see is that God, Jesus, takes it seriously. He takes what we do seriously. Chuck Swindoll, pastor, tells the following story of a man who took a dinner while on a flight. And after the stewardess had served him his meal, he unwrapped the salad and he noticed there was a large cockroach on top of the salad. Infuriated, he wrote the president of the uh, airline a letter, and it was quite a doozy. Um, within a matter of days, he received a special delivery letter signed by the president himself on the airline letterhead, and it was dripping with apologies. It said, I have taken immediate action. I have temporarily pulled that airplane off the line. We have pulled the seats. We have stripped all the upholstery. It will not go back up until everything is in shipshape condition. You have my word. This will never happen again. Please continue to fly our airline. Well, the, the man was, of course, remarkably impressed by this response. However, he noticed something unusual. On the back of this letter, um, the president's secretary had inadvertently allowed the sticky note from the president uh, to remain stuck to the apology letter. And the sticky note read this, send this guy the standard roach letter. So basically, this was just something they would just send out. Um, it, nothing would change. And let me just say all that. I said all that to say this. When it comes to worship, it's very easy for us to have the standard roach letter kind of attitude. What I mean by that is this, all show and no sincerity. Um, where we show up each week like clockwork, yet there's nothing behind it all. We just go through the motions. We do our expected Christian behavior. And, and yet there's nothing to show for it. Or even worse than that, the one who sees it all doesn't accept it. Another temptation is for us to make worship, which is, the word worship means worth-ship. So it's meaning um, putting value on that which is worthy. But the temptation is for us to take worship and make it about us. You know, when it comes to worship, people ask questions all the time like, well, where do you worship? Or when you think about the church, well, how is the worship um, at your church? And these type of questions basically either place worship in a physical location as if worship can only happen in this building or any building on one day a week or two days a week or however often they meet, or they attempt to determine the quality of worship by how good the music is or how good the pastor is. And uh, that's a scary thing to think about. In addition, emotions and feelings that accompany a worship service have become the primary draw, where people come to church looking for a feeling. Looking for an emotion. One pastor put it this way. Many people who come to church are looking for an experience. 
they do not want to think much. They want a direct encounter with God. They want to fill his presence with them. And when they do, or at least when they think they do, they call it worship. For them, worship is primarily their feelings or about their feelings. So it's about feelings and emotions and what we can do. And here's the thing. Anybody can mess with our emotions. I mean, a cartoon can mess with our emotions, but it doesn't mean we've worshiped doesn't mean we've done anything glorifying to God. We're replacing a true encounter with God, um, that which involves the mind and heart with a touching of an emotional nerve is a terrible trade-off. It's a terrible trade-off. So what, what we know is that true worship, and I'm going to um, surprise some of you today, but true worship, hear this, is about God. It's about loving him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength loving him with all i think of paul and silas they were in prison they didn't have anyone to lead them in worship and yet they worshiped anyway i think about Corey ten boom and her sister betsy who were in prison in ravensbrook concentration camp and during world war ii and yet they worshiped god mightily and bravely in the midst of suffering even while fighting lice disease and starvation. I think of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who even right now at this moment might be wondering if their life will be taken from them today and yet they are meeting together, singing quietly, praying quietly, reading the word and just clinging to the hope of God. And let me say that that is worship. That is worship. That is the picture of of understanding who God is and who we are. Or I think of the words of Pastor Louis Giglio who said, worship is our response, both personal and corporate. So, yes, worship has a corporate side, but worship must have a personal side. So it's a response to God for who he is, what he has done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way we live. So worship is the way we live our lives. And then I love this quote. Listen to this. Worship is when we give God his breath back. We give God his breath back. Who gave you the breath you just took? It wasn't you. Um, we give God his breath back. Then it says you only have one life of worship. You have one brief opportunity in time to declare your allegiance, to unleash your affection, to exalt something or someone above all else. So don't waste your worship on some little God squandering your birthright on idols made only with human imagination. Guard your worship. Meaning, guard your worship to make sure only God is getting it. Only God is getting it. So worship is a response of the whole being. It's heart, soul, mind, strength, emotions. It's all of it. And it's the response to beholding God, to beholding his glory, who he is. And as we're going to see this morning, Jesus is serious about worship. He's serious about the glory of God. And he responds in a very wild way, in a very um, purposeful way way when God isn't receiving what is due to him and him alone so if you're able I'm asking you to stand as we honor God's word today we're going to read John 3 verses 13 through 25 together this is a very hopefully familiar passage and uh, we're going to see where the Lord takes us in the beginning of verse 13 the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons 
and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But... Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, today, Lord, you know what's in us. Lord, you know, Father, what we are worshiping. You know, Lord, what gets our time, our attention, our energy. And Jesus, we ask even today by the power of your spirit that you would overturn tables in our own lives that you would run out things in our lives that we shouldn't be trusting in that you would God show yourself today to be the one who is worthy of all of our praise all of our trust all of our hope which we know that you are and you will be forever Lord just have your way today speak O God to your people for we're listening in Jesus name Amen, and you may be seated. So when we think about the picture of, Je of Jesus that we just saw, we live in a world where everyone gets their own personal Jesus, or at least they think they do. Just think about different Jesuses that exist in our culture. You know, we have Republican Jesus who is all for family morals. He watches Fox News. He definitely loves the Second Amendment, and he, he is packing heat without a doubt. Um, you know, we, we have Republican Jesus. Then we have Democrat Jesus, who is about helping the poor. He's about the environment. Of course, he watches MSNBC. Then we have hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, and of course, um, helps us all remember that all we need is love. Some of you are thinking the song now. Um, then we have Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee. He has a man bun. He loves to have spiritual conversations, and we know he drives a Tesla, so we have that. We have Touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster, jump higher, and this Jesus is always for your team. Whatever that team is, he's for your team. Then we have Anything Goes Jesus, and this Jesus is not concerned about sin only about loving us and making us happy. I think even right now we have eight members from our church who are right now in Las Vegas. Now four of those are my brother-in-law, sister, um, my nephew, and my daughter, Madison, is there. Now I tell you, anything goes Jesus is probably prevalent in Las Vegas, and he probably looks a lot like Elvis. Um, because Madison said, we've seen Elvis everywhere, and he looks rough. So in case you're wondering, Elvis is in Vegas, and he looks mighty rough. Then we have, of course, Guru Jesus, who is wise and inspirational. He helps us find our center 
all while probably doing yoga. Um, then we have good example, Jesus, who did a bunch of good stuff and said a lot of really nice things only as an example for us. Then we have martyr Jesus, who is a good man who died a cruel death for a good cause, and the cause is us, which is what better cause could there be than that. And then we have what we can't make up, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, our Lord. There are a bunch of Jesuses that cannot save us, and there is one that can. And I don't know how you've pictured Jesus in the past, physically speaking, but if, if you were to go by the Western um, portrayal, that's us, of how we view Jesus, you might get the impression that Jesus was a white, scrawny, effeminate man with long hair, a well-kept beard, and he was pretty uh, photogenic because we have a lot of pictures of him um, everywhere, especially in our Sunday school rooms and every, everything. And, of course, you know, he was, Jesus is definitely photogenic, always sitting down ready for a picture. Um, but the picture that we often see of Jesus or the picture that we have in our mind, hear this, is of a Savior who is no threat to us at all. We see a picture of Jesus and it looks like he did his hair, he did his beard, and he sits down, he crosses like he goes, and it's like, that's no threat to us at all. But hear me, that's the Jesus that we have created. When we look at this story today, we see Jesus making a whip, driving out thousands upon thousands of people and animals from the temple. And in the Gospels, Jesus was a threat to demons. In the Gospel, he was a threat to religious hypocrites. And in the Gospels, Jesus was a threat to anyone who wanted sin on the throne of their lives or self in the throne of their lives and not him. Jesus is a threat. In the 1700s, Charles Wesley the founder of the Methodist church penned a poem beginning with these words, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And let me say this. Jesus is absolutely gentle. He is meek and he is mild. If the person that he's dealing with is sincere, humble, and repentant, you will find him to be gentle. You will find him to be meek. You will find him to be mild. But if Jesus is dealing with you and you are religious hypocrite, or if you are just lip service to him, he is not gentle Jesus. He is angry Jesus. And he is lethal judge. And apparently, please hear this, he refuses to accept false and godless worship from people. He refuses to. So at the heart of this passage is the worship of God. What I want to lay before us today is three truths concerning authentic worship, accurate worship, acceptable worship. And see how this picture is painted here in these verses. So first is this, first truth, authentic worship is passionate for the glory of God. Authentic worship is passionate for the glory of God. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. In Jesus' day, every male living within 15 miles of Jerusalem would be required to attend Passover. If they were over the age of 19, they would also be required to pay a temple tax. So many Jews from further away would also make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When they arrived, their first destination would be to the temple. The roads would be crowded with, with people from everywhere for Passover. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, tells us that during one Passover season alone, during this time, they slaughtered 256,000 lambs in the temple. 
The going rate of people to lambs was 10 people to one lamb, typically. So there could have been 2.5 million people in Jerusalem during Passover. So just think about this. Think about the number of people, the masses of people. And then this is how it would work. Let's say you come from 25 miles away. You're not going to drag an animal with you the, the whole way. That's, that's too much carry-on luggage for you. So a sheep is not going to fit in the overhead compartment of your flight. So you are going to arrive to Jerusalem, animalist, or, I mean, think about it like this. Some of you are looking like you don't know what I'm talking about. Think about it. How many of us, if we had to walk 10 miles a day with a pigeon or a sheep to come to church this morning, would probably not be here right now. Some of you, you'd be waiting for church to start online with a pigeon on your shoulder feeding at crackers, is what you would be doing in this moment. But so when you arrived at the temple, you entered into this first court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. There would be someone there to say, do you need a lamb? Do you need a, a pigeon? Do you need a sacrifice? Meaning they literally had a sacrifice kiosk set up in the temple courts. And at this sacrifice kiosk were animal inspectors. So for those that did bring animals, for those that lived close by, they would bring an animal. They would have to present this animal to the animal inspector. And the animal inspector would have to make sure that this sacrifice was without blemish. Well, these inspectors would just about always find some microscopic fault in this sacrifice. They would reject it, forcing the person to pay a crazy amount for an acceptable sacrifice. Now, some have said they would even pay for your animal and give you less money, turn around and sell it for a greater price, and all of a sudden it was um, without blemish again. Then you had to exchange your money because foreign money was not accepted in the temple. In the temple, you could only use a temple shekel. Well, the fee for exchanging money in the temple was two hours of a working man's wages. So just follow with me here. This whole system was rigged against the worshiper. It was rigged. So here's the picture. All these people, or many of them, are coming to the temple, to this place of worship, to worship God with pure hearts, and they're being charged an arm and a leg to worship God. It's kind of like going to the movie today. The movie will cost you $10, and a Coke and popcorn will cost you $250. I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about what is happening. So Jesus comes in the temple, and what he finds is a religious zoo. It is a circus. And we read in verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling, and then he found money changers sitting there. In verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And here, please hear this. Jesus does not lose control. So don't think of Jesus ever as out of control. Jesus is not out of control. It's not like the Messiah here is having a bad day. Jesus doesn't know anything about bad days. In fact, Jesus didn't even bring a whip with him. He found cords lying on the temple floor, cords that had been basically had bound the animals up. And he sat down, he made a whip out of those cords. And then he used that whip to clear the thousands upon thousands in the court of the Gentiles. And in this moment, he was exercising his rightful authority over his father's house. Think about when Jesus says this, my father's house. He was saying, this is mine. This is mine, and look what you're doing to it. This is righteous indignation. This is holy 
anger from Jesus. And I get it. Most of us don't like this attribute of God. We don't like to think about God in his wrath. But it is a theme throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, God is a God who is loving, but he is a God who is also wrathful. I don't know what you're... I, I don't know what in the world. Technology. So she can't hear me. I hope you can today. But, but think about this. You know, we, we don't like to think about Jesus in this light. Uh, Pastor Paul Tripp once quipped, sometimes we can treat God's anger like we treat the embarrassing uncle in our extended family. We work hard to keep this attribute of God away from public exposure. We act as if anger were the dark side of God's character, and we need to keep it hidden. But hear this, and write this down. God doesn't have a dark side. God doesn't have a dark side. Everything about God is light. Everything about God is true, and everything about God is right. And the same is true of our Savior. A final important text that informs us what's happening here is Malachi chapter 3. If you can go ahead and turn there real quick, Malachi chapter 3. I want you to see what's happening here. In Malachi 3, there is a promise of a long-awaited Messiah literally coming to the temple. Now, some believe, of course, the this prophecy will be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming, but there was a part of this prophecy that is fulfilled right here. But in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, we know that's speaking of John, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Hear this, verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. So don't miss what's happening here. Every time the word suddenly appears in the Old Testament, it's speaking about God's judgment. So God is coming and he is judging. And it says that he is coming um, with, as refiner's fire and fuller's soap. The primary purpose of refiner's fire or fuller's soap was not to destroy, but to purify. It's to bring purity. And so what we see here is that in John 2, the Messiah has come suddenly to purify that which has become impure, the temple. The worship, temple worship. And please hear this this morning. God's goal for you is not your happiness. God's goal for you is holiness. If you are seeking only happiness, that you're seeking that which God hasn't promised to give you. God's promised you joy. Not all of your life will be just great ups and more ups and more ups. The picture is God allows the down so that he will make us holy. And so God's goal for us is not happiness. If you are seeking happiness, brothers and sisters, you are going to end up putting God on trial for not giving you what you think you deserve. But remember, as Pastor Jordan said last week, we know what we deserve. So just don't lose sight of that. But think about this. God wants our holiness. In order to produce that holiness, God will come into our lives and he will overturn the tables in our own lives and he will also drive out things that we must not lean upon. And this is what Jesus is doing here. 
What consumes Jesus in this moment is not just love for his father's house. What consumes Jesus is love for his father's glory. He wants God to be glorified, which begs the question, what are we passionate for? What consumes your thoughts, your dreams, your, your time? Are you passionate about him? Are you passionate about his glory? Before we move on, let me just say this. All this was taking place in what was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the place where people from outside of the covenant of Jews were, able, were supposed to be able to come in and find God. And what was happening in this court is these people were being prevented from coming and worshiping God. And so the picture is for us is there are things that we can do that we call worship that can literally, if we're not careful, keep people from coming to know the Lord. And we've got to be very, very, very careful, brothers and sisters, that we aren't putting stumbling blocks up from keeping people from coming to know the Lord. Oh, to God that we would never stand in the way of people coming to see him for who he is. So authentic worship is passionate for the glory of God. Secondly, now let's look at accurate worship. So secondly, accurate worship has a right understanding of Jesus. So accurate worship has a right understanding of Jesus. So after being forced out of the temple, there's no repentance on the people's part. There's no sorrow. There's no confession. They don't have any interest in any of that because, hear this, they don't love God. All they love is how worship benefits them. So how can worship benefit them? So now they demand something from Jesus. Look at verse 18. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, if Jesus would have done a sign here for them, he would have basically signaled or it would have signaled the domestication of God. That we can just tell God, we need you to do this right now, and God has to do it because um, we're in control and he is not. Listen, any allegiance that you have to God that is dependent upon God doing for you what you want him to do is not a relationship that the Bible ever um, declares. And the picture is, if you, are, if you are, think you're in that kind of relationship with God, it's not the God of this word. We don't make the terms here. God makes the terms, and we come to him on his terms, not on ours. But indeed, if the Jews had eyes to see, they would have realized that Jesus cleansing the temple was a sign. For Jesus' assault on the temple, on the corruption of the temple, was a preview of an even greater assault that would take place when Jesus died on the cross, when the veil of the temple, the Holy of Holies, was ripped from top to bottom, and the Holy of Holies was now exposed, and all the sacrificial system ended at the crucifixion of jesus there was a greater assault on the temple then in verse 19 jesus gives them a sign look he says destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up now immediately those who heard him thought the physical temple now the physical temple being built by herod had been being built for 46 years it still had over 30 years of construction left on it so they're thinking who in the world could what can you do in three days? Like, we know you're a carpenter, but you're not that good. Like, what in the world are you thinking? And, of course, John adds that Jesus was speaking about his body, speaking about the resurrection. This is a claim that Jesus made for the resurrection. Just think about the claims of Jesus, even in the book of John. In John 4, 26, to the woman at the well, Jesus claims to be the Messiah. In John 6, 35, after feeding 
over 5,000 uh, with just a few loaves and, and fishes. Jesus claimed to be the bread that brings true life. In John 8, 12, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. In John 8, 58, Jesus claimed to be before Abraham, the I am. In John 10, 30, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. In John 14, 6, Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. In John 3 and in John 8, Jesus claimed that he would be lifted up, meaning that he would be crucified. And then here, the claim of all claims, the first time Jesus gives this claim here in John 2, 19, is the claim of the resurrection. That Jesus, he says, you'll destroy, but I'll raise. You'll destroy. You'll do this destroying. I'll do the raising. You want more proof that Jesus made the most audacious claim in the history of humanity? In Matthew 27, his enemies posted a guard at the tomb to keep, in their minds, to keep the disciples from stealing the body of Jesus and claiming that it had been resurrected. Now, why? It tells us because they remember that in Jesus' life, he had claimed that he would rise from the dead. In the words of one commentator, these Jews were looking for a sign. They were looking for a big miracle and authority. This is it. This is the sign. The greatest miracle of all. That the temple of his body will be destroyed. But Jesus himself will raise it up and restore it in three days to never be destroyed again. And when that happens, the physical temple of Jerusalem will be obsolete and the new temple will be raised. And people who believe in Jesus will have fellowship with the Father in Jesus who is the new temple. He is our new place of worship. But think about this picture, the resurrection. If Jesus went through death and if Jesus emerged in resurrection, then the last word over our lives no longer belongs to the powers of darkness no longer belongs to guilt or injustice or addiction or pain or despair or uh, sorrow or betrayal or shame or abuse or even death nor anything other evil thing that we can imagine. Jesus gets the last word over your life and over my life. And we rejoice in that meaning this the center of Christianity is not a place, but it's a person. And his name is Jesus. So this is a distinct feature of our faith, meaning we don't need to make a trip to a sacred place to worship our God. Jesus is the sacred place. He is the place that we worship. He is the place that we meet God. He is the place that we encounter God. So accurate worship has a right understanding of Jesus, who he is. And then number three, acceptable worship begins with genuine belief in Jesus. Acceptable worship begins with genuine belief in Jesus. Follow with me here. Look at verse 23. You can see it on the screen. It says this, many believed in his name. Now we should stop there and we should say, praise the Lord, yes. But John doesn't do that. And we're going to keep going. I'm going to show you why. It says, believe in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. As I noted two weeks ago, the gospel contains 37 miracles that Jesus 
uh, did and, and, and performed during his time on this earth. Now, in the Gospel of John, John includes seven miracles. Now, at the end of John, in John 21, John says Jesus did many other signs, more than we could ever write in any book. But I included the ones that I included so that you would understand who he is. But, but here's the point. We are a people, humanity, that we are often willing to attribute much greater honor to ourselves for our human inventions than we are to God for what he has done. We, we oftentimes, if we're not careful, we attribute more honor for what we have accomplished and what we do than what God has done and continues to do. Remember, if God chooses not to give you breath in your lungs, you're not finding it anywhere else. There's no other place to look for it. It is coming from him. And we have to understand that a miracle is a divine work wrought with divine power, his alone, for a divine purpose that only God can do. And it's one thing to hope in God for a miracle. There are many unbelievers that are hoping in God for a miracle. In fact, I think about Las Vegas. There's many of unbelievers that are hoping to God for a miracle. Please, God, please. They're hoping to God for a miracle. Anybody can do that. It's another thing to trust him alone for salvation. It's another thing to trust him alone for salvation. And look at verse 24. As you see on the screen, it says, But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. The end of verse 25, it says, he himself knew what was in man. So it begins, this section begins, people believed in his name. Praise God. But then it says this, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Jesus, or another way to put it, Jesus didn't think much about their belief. Listen, Jesus knows all people. He knows the heart of every single person. One of my most favorite books is by A.W. Tozer called the, the Knowledge of the Holy. And in it, he writes about the omniscience of God, which is also the omniscience of Christ, this way. He says this, God perfectly knows himself, and being the source and author of all things, it follows that he knows all that can be known. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. He knows all mind and every mind, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth, he knows space, he knows all time, he knows all life and all death, he knows good and evil, he knows heaven and hell. And then he continues, because God knows all things perfectly, he knows nothing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God? And here's the beautiful picture there. Nothing surprises God. Even, hear this today, brothers and sisters, your and my behavior. I have never surprised God by what I've done. I've surprised myself a lot. There's been many times it's like, I can't believe I said that. can't believe I did that. I can't believe I fell for that. I surprised myself. And some of you are like, oh, give us more. Please give us more. Listen, I surprised myself. I, again, 
I surprise myself all the time by the stupidity of the things that I do in my fallen flesh, but I praise God I never surprise him. Again, Jesus died for me with his eyes open. He knew what he was getting. He died for you with his eyes open. He knew you. He knows me. And omniscience is Jesus knows the secret hearts of us. And so right here, from the very outset of the Gospel of John, we're introduced to an important issue all throughout redemptive history, which is the presence of false, superficial, artificial faith that doesn't save. Warren Wearsby calls this group of Jews unsaved believers. They believe, but they're unsaved. So therefore, Jesus does not entrust himself to them. Jesus doesn't believe they're believing. Jesus doesn't trust they're trusting. Jesus has no faith in their faith. Think about this today. Brothers and sisters, there is a type of faith that cannot save us. Because we put our faith in ourselves or we put it in some form of God that we have created for ourselves. And we have refused to receive the one who has done it all for us. There is a type of faith that will not save. There is a type of believing that will not lead to saving belief. So the question for us is, is our faith superficial? Is our faith artificial? Or do you have true faith, saving faith, in a saving Savior? Let me just say this this morning, and please hear this. Jesus will never commit himself to unbelief. Let me say it again. Jesus will never, ever commit himself to unbelief. If you are walking in unbelief of him, Jesus will not just ignore that and say, well, we're we're good. No, Jesus knows all. And what this shows us is there are no secrets in your life. You, You may have succeeded in hiding something all your life from everyone on earth, but you have not hidden it from him. You are totally known. There is not the slightest part of your heart unknown to Jesus. Unknown to you? Yes. Did you know that you have no idea what you're capable of? Jeremiah 17 says that your heart and my heart are deceitfully wicked. We can't know it. Meaning, we have, I have no idea what I'm capable of accomplishing if I were to give myself over to sin fully. I have no idea how far sin will take me. And you have no idea how far sin will take you. I don't know my own heart, let alone your heart. But he does. He does. Therefore, you always, I always have someone who will help us know ourselves. He will help us know ourselves. Think about in John 21, after Peter had denied Jesus three times, Peter now stands before Jesus, and Jesus asked Peter three questions, pointing us back to Peter's three denials. And the question was the same. So he he asked one question three times. Peter, do you love me? The first time Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Well, Peter, do you love me? The second time Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Third time, Peter, do you love me? And it says, Peter, His heart was pricked because he understood what Jesus was doing. And Peter said this, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know everything. There is one who knows your heart and my heart 
perfectly, who knows it better than we do, and his name is Jesus Christ, the one who knows you fully, loves you deeply. That should have got an amen from somebody. The one who knows you fully, loves you deeply, but hear this, he will not receive superficial faith or he will not receive godless worship from you or from me. He won't do it. The only way for us to know God and experience his love is for us to have true worship, to believe in Jesus, to have life in his name. And that involves resting all that we are upon him. There is an unbeliever in this room today. My cry to you is turn from yourself, turn from trusting in yourself, turn from your sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ today. Turn to him as Savior and Lord, and you will be saved. He will save you now. Come to Jesus. Come to him. But let let me say this to the believers today. I think John 2 is calling us as believers to ask God to examine our own hearts. And as we ask God to examine our own hearts, then God shows us things that we would repent of coldness in worship i'm not just talking about what happens here i mean sometimes we need to repent of that i'm talking about just coldness of our whole lives our lives of worship to him that we need to repent of low thoughts of god ask god to deliver you from small thoughts concerning god that are not worthy of god Ask God that you would take and you would believe only what this word says about God. Don't believe what everybody who thinks they're a Bible scholar who's never even read the book. They just said, oh, here's what Jesus I know would do. If there is a Jesus, here's what he would do. No, this book tells us what Jesus did. And what he would believe the God of this book. Then let's pray for fresh passion for the glory of God. Let's pray for greater affections for Jesus. Let's pray and let's seek that our our worship of God would be accepted each and every day. And especially as we come together in this time of corporate worship, that, that we would not push him further away by our worship, but that we would see him draw near as we draw near to him. Let's be grateful that we have Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who has made it possible for us to worship him in spirit and in truth, both now and forever. Let me just say again, Jesus is serious about the worship of God. He is serious about the glory of God. Oh, that we would get serious about what he is serious about. As Frank just said, prayed earlier, may, may what is on the heart of God be on our hearts. May what he is passionate about become what we're passionate about. And may we be passionate more and more about him. For you see, we serve a God-centered God. Meaning, our God desires to make much of himself. And in case that strikes you weird, who else would you have God make much of? You? Me? We're not worth it. God knows who he is. Therefore, God knows the greatest thing that you and I can do is to make him first, to seek him first, to put him first, to make much of him always. That's the greatest thing that we can do. May we do more of it, brothers and sisters. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand.
We're going to call the musicians forward and enter into this time of invitation and consecration. And we say whatever it is that God is telling us to do, may we do it in this moment. Let us pray. Father, today we pray, God, that the tables of our own hearts have been overturned. That you have shown us all, Lord, things in our hearts and lives that aren't pleasing to you. And Lord, help, help us, God, not just to say, well, you'll overlook it. Because, Lord, this text today shows that you don't overlook it. It's got to be dealt with. Help us to deal with it. Lord, help us to bring our sin, our fault, our unbelief, our wrong beliefs to the light of you. And you will cast those things out. And you will allow us to draw even closer to you, more and more to you. God, help us individually to be people who make much of you. Help us never to stand in the way of other people coming to know you. And Lord, I just I pray, Father, that we as a church would be a people who make much of you. Jesus, you said that if you are lifted up, you will draw people to you, meaning salvation and on the cross. But Lord, I believe also that if we continue to lift you up, Jesus, that you will continue to draw people to yourself. Lord, help us to do that in our time together. Lord, help us to just commit together, God, as a faith family to make much of you. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.